Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by interviewing world-class experts in UX and product management, and they share with us their expert learnings, advice, and experiences. My guest today is Steve Portugal, an escaped Canadian now living in the San Francisco Bay Area. Steve is the principal of Portugal Consulting, a firm he established 20 years ago to help people uncover key insights about their customers so that they could make better decisions about the design of their products, services, and businesses. But the title principal doesn't really do Steve justice. He's one of the most well-known, deeply experienced and effective consulting UX researchers on the planet. You simply don't get invited to help people at companies like Balkan, Dolby, eBay, HP, Microsoft, Nike, PayPal, and Sony to solve wicked problems if you're a lightweight. Steve is perhaps most at home in other people's comfort zones. He's interviewed hundreds of people, including families eating breakfast, evangelical home automation enthusiasts and rock musicians, all in the pursuit of discovering what matters. He's also put his interviewing skills to use as the host of Dollars to Donuts, a podcast where Steve speaks with people who lead user research at their organizations, like Udemy, The New York Times, and IBM, to name a few. Steve's a regular blogger and author of two widely praised books, on user research, interviewing users, how to uncover compelling insights, which has fast become a classic, even though it's only seven years old. And more recently, Doorbells, Danger and Dead Batteries, User Research War Stories, which is a hilarious and insightful look into the trials and tribulations of being a user researcher. These contributions to the field and Steve's engaging speaking style have seen him invited and invited back to speak at conferences, and meetups around the world, including Mind the Product, Northern UX, UXNZ, UX Australia, and South by Southwest. Steve's been described by his peers and clients as a creative force, a vital part of the community, and incredibly insightful. And, well, here he is. Steve, welcome to the show. Can I go lie down now? That was, uh, that was lovely. And no, no pressure or expectations out here. Thanks for that great <laughs> intro. It's great to get to speak with you. I like to set the bar high. And before we get into sort of the obvious subject matter of today's conversation, I really wanted to ask you perhaps the most important question of this interview, which was, why do you have a museum of foreign groceries in your home? I mean, why not? Why have a... You know, it's the uh, it's those weird. I think you see this among research people, but I think people that are into sort of design, UX, and products, and just it's sort of all of us. We find things about the sort of the commercial world or the consumer world that that we experience not in our work but just in our travails as someone who shops and eats. Or you know, many people have a thing that they're obsessed with or entertained by or that's kind of their running joke uh, you know whatever that would be and and for me sort of early in my career I mean anyone that gets to travel outside their home country or home culture 
it's 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 in the rearview mirror for me now but so it's it's like i remember being young and and just being struck by stuff that is weird or funny or strange um which is i mean i use those judgmental terms i, I mean i mean to be very light about it it's it's your own view of the world is suddenly challenged um and i remember uh you know growing up in canada in that era that i did i, I don't know how common this is anymore but go back going to backpack around europe was sort of the thing that you did when you finished your 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 finished uni right and uh so my roommates and i we took we just took two weeks we went to european capital cities like you'd expect and um uh, uh, I remember having this moment of, um, you know, you buy things in the grocery store and kind of go eat in the park. We were very frugal, uh, staying in youth hostels, sort of very typical experience, I think. Uh, so go into the grocery store. Um, we're in Amsterdam. Everything's in Dutch, but it sort of looks like English. You sort of can figure out what everything is. And, you know, we buy some bread and we buy some cheese and buy um, kind of a... a pint container, 500 milk container of chocolate milk. It's like in the dairy section. Um, I love chocolate milk. It's kind of like a childish thing to, to, to do, to get, you know, kind of, I was just ready for a little treat. It'd been a hard day of being a tourist and, you know, it's got a picture of farm and cows on it. And it's got that chocolate brown color is kind of the artwork on, on the box, right? On the carton pay it with our, you know, with our foreign money, obviously we're foreign, but you know, everything seems foreign to us. Go sit in the park, having what we're having, open up the carton, you know, just so excited to have some chocolate milk. I'm like a young man. So, you know, how young men drink, they're just glug, glug, glug. I just tilt my head back and tilt this carton back and um, it's pudding. So it's just this like, blob kind of like entering my mouth and you know you just set your brain up for a sensory experience and oh i'm sorry i should it said something like you know uh like dutch looks sort of like english right chocolate milken or something like that. like it said what it was and so this pudding comes and i mean i must have just screeched out loud like it's, it was such such a shock right and um so that's kind of like anyway that's the canonical like patient zero, you know, foreign grocery experience where, um, you know, not only was I, I mean, I was surprised by something sort of benign, mm. uh, seemingly benign. Mm. Um, and then, you know, sort of years later, as I'm getting to travel for my profession and, um, you know, we're in Japan and we're going into restaurants and trying to navigate or whatever we're doing kind of for field work or for the not the research, but the life of the researcher that is being exposed to these different things. Um, you know, you find funny, uh, uh, funny mascots, um, uh, flavors that you don't think would be that interesting, maybe where you're from. Uh, uh, lots of words that are very funny in English that maybe aren't meant to be funny in the language that they're written in, but they want to have kind of an English brand on them. Mm -hmm. um, so they started to be kind of sort of souvenirs or uh, mementos of the experience, right? Um, and then I just started kind of collecting them, like, oh, this would be a thing to do. Like, it's you could spend a very small amount of money and like kind of capture some part of, of this experience. Um, and so then, you know, 
making it a museum was just like a way to maybe in some way sort of market myself, like just to try to describe myself. Uh, I mean, some of this goes back to, you know, 20 years ago being new at being my own consultant and just trying mm. to say in the world, like, oh, here's an interesting thing about me uh, that, that, that captures in an indirect way what it is that I think that I do, right? See how things are. It's, it is that thing that we do in research, right? We, we don't, we can't completely forego our own assumptions about the world, but we do find things that represent somebody else's assumptions about the world and kind of hold them up so that we can examine both our assumptions and the reality. Um, you know, I'm making, I'm making it sound much more kind of precious than it really is, but, um, it's just well, that's kind of a, a quick and dirty way to tell that story about myself in a way that's maybe fun. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. That. I, I like that, and let that be a lesson to anyone that's traveling to to Holland and and wants a glass of chocolate chocolate milk. I think there's something in there for for us as researchers uh, about checking our expectations and our prior assumptions before we get into a into a research session in there. And you, and Steve, you mentioned in there um, sort of touched on this notion of curiosity and that the collection of these um, pieces of you know foreign grocery is almost like part memento, but it's formed this library of curiosities in your in your home. And you mentioned 20 years ago, and I want to come back to that in a minute. But before we do that, I was actually listening to another podcast that you were interviewed in, the Shift podcast. And it was, I think, Kavita Apachu. She asked you about the dedication of your first book to your mum, interviewing users, Shana. And what I, what I, what I wanted to, to ask you, because I, I really like that story, you know, why did you dedicate your first book to, to, you, to your mum? Well, do I need to be consistent with how I answered that question last time? Because you just watched it and you know what I said. I know, but that, that, that was six months ago and I don't remember how, what I said exactly. There's no, there's no test. Um, yeah, I know I grew up in a single parent household. So um, it's more, that is maybe more common now. I think there's just as life has changed, but certainly in the era that, that we grew up in, it was, um, it wasn't quite shameful, but it was pretty close to that, um, you know, and sort of a, a traditional conservative, um, you know, sort of European centric kind of community that we were from. Mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, not, and that we were sort of uh, from, my family was sort of expats from one part of Canada to another part of Canada. So, you know, we were, there was not multiple generations of people there. So we were, I think it's sort of an isolated uh, kind of upbringing. I don't mean that we didn't have community and friends, but some of the infrastructure that maybe we take for granted in certainly, you know, what I'm exposed to now at this point in my life. Um, and so, you know, that means that there's a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility for um, my mother who, you know, I think made it her her goal to ensure that her kids had opportunities beyond those which she had. You know, she she finished high school and that was it, and kind of did, you know, didn't ever have really uh, a career. She worked her whole life uh, until she retired, you know, to enjoy that. But she worked to uh, take care of everybody, 
Um, I mean, she worked at a job to take care of everybody, but she also worked to take care of everybody. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I think for, so that, I mean, the dedication says that my mother taught me how to ask questions. And I think sort of, you know, that is the text, right? That my mother is, a, is an incessant question asker. Uh, it's one of those qualities that, you know, you admire and you roll your eyes at, depends kind of where you are at in the, in the question asking. Um, and then, so I think the text is sort of saying like, it's, it's, it's impossible to disconnect, you know, what my profession demands of me in terms of looking at the world, like doing that task, but also thinking about the world that way, uh, literally is a thing that I was exposed to, but also I think, you know, reaching a point in one's life where, wow, I wrote a book and I am having this book come out. Like, where does all this, I mean, that's a milestone um, that, you know, I was extremely, I mean, yeah, grateful for the chance to, to get to that point. Um, and I think the subtext of that dedication is just to acknowledge like, yeah, it's, I was put on a path, put on a path by someone that didn't, know what that path looked like, but kind of, you know, sent out with to, to have opportunities. Um, so I think the subtext is kind of acknowledging, yeah, if not for the kind of upbringing that I had, um, then I wouldn't, wouldn't be having this conversation with you. It wouldn't be someone who's written books. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, really beautiful story. And thank you for sharing that with us today. So I, I don't like to ask people to pick favorites, especially when you know it comes to children. But in this case, when it comes to books, you've written two. Obviously, the one that we were just talking about um, interviewing users was, was your first. Have you got a favorite of the two that you've released? Yeah, um, I mean, the, you know, the sales numbers tell me what the world's favorite is. Interviewing users is, um, you know, referred to it as a classic. I think it it's, it's, it's done really, really well. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I can sort of say how and why they're different in terms of, so I know I think all, uh, Doorbell's Danger and Dead Batteries is my favorite, um, but they were, they're very, very different experiences. I was just telling someone yesterday that um, writing a second book was amazing as an experience because I had to relearn how to write a book and I think, maybe many of us go through whatever creative projects, different kinds of endeavors, and, you know, you figure it out and then the, the stakes change or the context changes. You got to refigure out how to do that. Um, and for years, I was very intimidated by the idea of writing a book to begin with, manage somehow to kind of do it with all the help and support that I had the first time, and then took on a very different kind of project um, and was just stuck for so long but there was a point in the, so if people haven't read the book, it's a collection of, um, I want to say like 35 stories from other researchers about experiences they've had and kind of I'm there in the book, kind of pulling it together and, and reflecting on what these things tell us as researchers. Um, so very different than writing interviewing users, which was basically capturing I don't know, 15 years of practice, of teaching, of blog posts, of lectures, um, and trying to, you know, taking what I had been doing 
I mean, the, you know, the, the arrogant uh, analogy I use is like the band that gets signed after playing clubs for 10 years puts out an amazing debut album because they have been, they've had those songs forever and they've been kind of playing and, re and refining them. So I think, yeah, Energy Users came out seven years ago, but it's, you know, 15 or more years of work that kind of went into it. Um, so yeah, then, you know, the, the, the bands have the sophomore slump, right? But the second album doesn't necessarily do as well because it's like, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an album about being in a band because suddenly that's what their, that's what their life is about. And it, so I wrote a second book, which is about what's it like to be a researcher? I mean, I'm just, I'm cliche all down the line. Um, but that experience of writing was extremely, it was, was hard to figure out what that was gonna feel like, but there was a point at which uh, like I cracked it, like the light bulb went off or whatever metaphor you want. And um, it was an extremely rewarding creative state. We're like, oh, I've got this. Now I can just do this. I can like write this chapter, write this chapter, write this chapter, see how it's structured and have things to say. And um, yeah, you know, creative work can just be a grind or it can be like this thing that lifts you up. Um, it's pretty rare to encounter the latter, but I, I got there with that. Um, and, you know, just having gone back over it at different times to use it for talks and conferences and pull things out. There are all these pieces that I kind of go back and look at and I'm like, damn, like that's, that's good. Like, you know, and, or I remember who did the review of the draft and kind of pointed me how to fix this thing. Um, so it's a very self-centered view of favorite, right? I think, you know, it's not about what does the world need or where is their value or what do people get out of it, but as the creator of something and kind of the pride that I take in it. And then the caveat to all this is I have sort of wondered, like maybe I should go back and read my first book. Like what, what I don't really know what is in there the same way because to sort of write it and then it is material that I'm still teaching and still applying and, and, and so on. But I don't, um, I don't know that book as well. Again, because of look where that material came from mm. um, and how it's sort of like I, I organized it, but I've been living it before and since. What was it about needing to tell other researchers stories in the way that you did, you know, why, why this format, you know, what were you hoping that it would achieve? What impact would it have in, in the community and for researchers? So the original intent was not to do that. Um, and, and the books are linked. Um, there's a point in interviewing users where I talk about, you know, one of the ways that we can learn to be better at research is telling stories about what happens um, and interviewing users, it says, go to this URL, there are stories there. Um, and so before interviewing users came out, I had to solicit stories. Um, so I'd obviously been thinking about it. Uh, I had my own stories. Um, you know, I had somebody working for me that had this had a couple of great stories. And uh, so I was just always awestruck by them in terms of uh, just a great story just really moves you without really picking not really picking up on what did that story tell me, but just that sense you get, oh wow, this says it all. Uh, so I started this project kind of in support of interviewing users to populate that URL, to solicit stories. 
uh, and um, and they would they're sitting they still sit on a on a on a channel in a blog on, on my site I guess is how I describe it um, and you know every story that would come in I'd be like oh man like that's it and and um, and and. It was really interesting as the stories kind of accrued, you start to feel like, oh, this is kind of a corpus. Like this is kind of a collective. And, um, and, and what happens is they're on a blog and sort of blogs are about the recent posts. Um, and, and as time goes on, suddenly I have this sort of historical collection that's now disappeared. It's on like, if you were to page through, it's on like the 11th page, the 27th page, like it's not, and so the gestalt of it, the, the thing it aggregates into was, was lost. Um, and at the same time, a number of my peers and friends were self-publishing. And self-publishing went from like an, uh, an inaccessible thing, maybe over the last, you know, from X years ago to like five years ago. It's very uh, logistically realistic way to do it. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I have these stories. Let me just put them from one form into the other. I'm going to concatenate them, put them in series and put them in, in paper with like a cover on it. And like, that'll just be this thing that just has some, some meaning. You can read all, you can hold on to them all together out of sort of this, this diffusion of the blog um, and, and look at what they have to say. And um, so I don't know how this always works, but my publisher, Rosenfeld Media, has a clause. It's, it's a first right of refusal clause. If, you write, if they sign you, they have the right, you have to give them your first book or they, they can turn it down if they want to, but you got to go to them first. Like some kind of contractually obligated. So I have the meeting. I think it even just came up like, uh, like we're at a bar. Like it was not a formal meeting, but I just kind of said, hey, I think I want to do this. I know it's probably not for you. I'm just going to kind of do this thing. And uh, Lou Rosenfeld, you know, my friend and publisher says, well, like maybe there's something more to it. I'm like, I, I don't know. I just think it's just all these stories put together. It's like, you know, maybe you have a new theory of user research that's kind of lurking in here. I'm like, I don't know. Um, and so we negotiate. So anyway, he was not interested in refusing. Uh, he's like, he wants another book. Um, and he thinks there's something in here. So we just negotiated and like you go through this iterative process of, of trying to describe what the book is going to be about. Um, even though, you know, a lot of times you don't really know until you sort of start writing it. Um, and so I was kind of cajoled, pushed along, pulled along, encouraged to kind of take it a little bit further. Um, and so then I think that's sort of where I was stuck. It's like, okay, I can kind of group these, but what do I have to say about it? Like, so what? Um, and that's where working with an editor is like really helpful because, you know, they would, they would uh, even just very tactical things like every chapter should end with a series of tips. And I'm like, but these stories are up here. They're about these things that happen. You know, they're about somebody kneeling in cat urine and having to sort of still maintain their, their rapport. Like, What's the tip for that? Bring extra pants? Like, how do you, how do you sort of translate these stories, which are sort of, they're kind of anti-lesson or they're like meta-lesson or something. How do you translate that? So that was kind of the, the pushing and direction that I got from, you know, working with a publisher, working with an editor. 
Um, and then, yeah, like I said, you reach this point in the creative process where, oh, like this is what it's about. Like now I get what I what it is that I have been trying to say or what what is the gestalt when you put these things together? Um, you know, and it's sort of clearer at the end, but it was very unclear at the beginning. Um, and at the end, you know, so that, that all being said, the reason I started aggregating these things in the first, first place is I think I want people to tell stories about what happens, including the things that go wrong, including sort of the ordinary and banal things that happen because that is the reality. And we don't talk about those things. We don't talk about, you know, case studies and conference presentations where we're missing the chance to really learn as a community, as a practice. I mean, so that mission, I think, is, was what drove me. Um, but it's not until I kind of understand what the book is shaping up to be that I'm able to say that more clearly, I think, than just sort of here's a bunch of stories. Yeah, I mean, look, it was certainly a really effective format for helping you feel connected to the community globally. And there are a couple of stories in there that I particularly enjoyed. One, I believe, was in Portugal or Spain, and it was a female researcher visiting, uh, I think, a, vit a viticulturist or a, or, a, or a winemaker. And uh, he just refused to acknowledge her as the research lead because she was a female and it wasn't until she was able to check that situation, step away from it, have a conversation over tea, and then work into it, interview questions once she'd addressed that bias that he had held, uh, possibly just because of his age, and then was able to continue with the interview. And I think there's so, just so many gems in the book um, of just uh, the expectations we have when we go into someone else's environment and the, the, the sometimes the disgust and another story that you had there with, you know, the dirty nappy on the way up the drive that the, another researcher had and how you manage those situations and storytelling such a, a, a really powerful format for passing on wisdom. So it was, a, it was a really, really great book and I highly recommend it. Shifting gears, Steve, thinking about what you do so user research ux research whatever you want to call it whatever we call it these days there are a lot of different perspectives out there about what it is what it isn't how you should do it how you shouldn't do it to you what is the role of user, user research there are many perspectives and uh depending on when you get me i want to say they're all wrong or that we have room for all of them. Um, I think it's that tension between this, our, our, I mean, everybody's understanding is evolving and shifting all the time and the language shifts and everything all the time. But what, yeah, what are, what is the role of research? Ooh, hmm. um, I wish I had some like great wisdom. Let me, let me take a shot at it and let's see if it sounds smart or like I'm making something up. And I think the role of research is to um, is to kind of elevate the sense of, it's not just the sense of, I'm trying to elevate something. And that thing is, what do we collectively believe about the world, which is my, it's more than just our users. It really is what's out there. Um, the world, ourselves, and the things that we can do, so that's product, services, communication, strategy, brand, mission statement, 
all the things that we can do to connect with in the way that's kind of best for us about them. So there's an us, there's a them, and then there's choices we make about what we want to do. And, and so when I say, I say elevate, we're like, I'm trying to move that forward into a more confident and kind of empowered state so that better decisions can be made. And you're a consulting researcher and that gives you a external perspective often which the internal researchers or product or design teams just don't have from your experience on from the outside in how do you think in general terms the organization sees the role of user research Yeah, I think it would have few of those words in it. I think, uh, you know, in the worst possible situation, well, the worst possible situation is we don't need research. We, we know all this. Um, but I think just above that is, um, is sort of the, the, the situation where research is seen as confirmatory or, or, or validating. Um, and uh, I don't know if I can do this justice, but I had someone once kind of try to parse out the difference between evaluative and validation. Um, whereas evaluative is help us kind of assess and validation is, you know, give us the rubber stamp. Like, yes, yes, you just did, yes, that. Um, so uh, I, I think sometimes we map this to strategic and tactical, but I don't think that's a clean mapping because I think you can be strategic about sort of tactical, you can be, you can do strategic evaluations. You can, you can use all this information a lot of ways. Um, uh, I think research is often seen as, you know, a way to help the company. You get these sort of phrases like be closer to our customers. There's, they're soft, but I think they're, it's a good kind of soft definition, right? You're trying to empower an understanding that's kind of a, an engine or kind of a baseline sense of what it is we're doing and who we're doing it for. Um, but I, I described something that I think was a little more tapping right into kind of the mission of the organization. Um, and I think that is not, I mean, I, it's hard to be, you've married very many different kinds of companies, mm -hmm. different kinds of, you know, uh, leadership, including research leadership. Um, that isn't always what that potential for research, which I'm articulating, isn't always the role that research is placed in. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the people I talk to on my podcast who are leading those research functions inside those companies, um, you know, would probably talk more about um, shipping products. I mean, the things that the company does to make money and stay in business and they have jobs and how they can, um, you know, support their colleagues in making the right decisions about those things in the, in the products. Um, and I think what I like about the people I talk to in my podcast is they're kind of whatever it takes to get that kind of information that will help support them in making those decisions. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have the, the consultants, um, you know, 
aspirational framing of it sits that it can be slightly higher than that. Um, but yeah, that's, as you said, I'm a consultant. These people are inside organization, inside these teams. Mm, and I've heard you say in the past that it's interesting to see how the language of the people inside the organization almost instantaneously changes when they're responsible for delivering research in that context, largely because incentives um, are, are aligned behind whatever the organization wants to achieve, not necessarily uh, what it is that people need to hear. And this is actually something that I've been quite fascinated with is this idea of uh, research becoming an internal function, as you mentioned, and how that, um, how that or if that senses uh, or modifies the approach that researchers take. You've mentioned or you've taken issue in the past with uh, researchers describing themselves as supporting squads. Um, and, and this sort of spoke to me about this notion of you talk about aspiration, you know, it sounds like research as, as, as a leading um, uh, activity within creating value um, as opposed to a following or a supporting activity. Uh, how important is the structure uh, of re that enables research to shaping the way in which people think about their role? Structure is a great term because I think it can mean reporting structure, uh, but there's other sort of structural elements about how people work internally. Um, I heard a story from someone who's a research leader at a big technology company, and uh, she was describing to me how uh, when the UX and especially the user research function uh, defined, um, you know, roles and promotion and kind of levels and so on, uh, you know, they felt like a key measure, like an input into those decisions of career progression would be um, input from other functions. So in this case, I think it might be engineering and maybe product management. Um, so that it was important for the researchers performance assessment to include input from these other functions that they support or collaborate with. Um, but this leader pointed out to me, that's not, that's asymmetrical. Those functions do not ask for research to uh, provide input to them. If you're an engineer, you're reviewed by engineers and your manager, and then you kind of evolve that way. Um, but, but researchers are kind of saying like, oh no, this is kind of the right thing to do. Our work is very much dependent on impact and influence. Um, so even sort of structurally, how you are going to be promoted and the power that, that other disciplines have to kind of determine how you're gonna be successful. Um, and then this, this then creates situations where, so here's this, here's this leader who has people that, that, that they are responsible for. Um, and I mean, I think the thing that, and this is probably true for every discipline, but researchers, we like to complain about unrealistic or kind of uneducated expectations. Can you give us this information this way that will help us do this? Well, that's, that's not gonna work. Like we have to do this, it takes this much time. We don't have that much time. So all those kinds of uh, expectations that are set by other people and, and all that negotiation. Well, those people are now um, determining like, literally your promotion, right? Your, your, your financial incentives are determined by people that 
um, you may need to say no to. And so here's the manager. The manager's job, I mean, among many other things, is to kind of run interference, is to uh, ensure that the people that, that report to them are being kind of utilized effectively and consistent with their skills and best practices to do quality work, to kind of help the company ship products that you know people will you know buy and use and love and all that. Uh, well, now all these things are in conflict. So it's not even about, so I guess when you say structure, I'm like, that's sort of a structural aspect too, uh, but it's kind of in policy, it's kind of in HR, it's kind of in management. Um, but it, I mean, there's just all these conflicts, right? These things are not in harmony and, um, you know, it has sort of the negative effects that you would expect, I think, in terms of, yeah, how are people stressed about trying to meet expectations? And if you think about like what kind of people become researchers, many of us are people pleasers, maybe conflict averse. Uh, there tend to be my assessment, there tend to be more introverts in, in research. Um, we tend to, you know, our skill in research often is about listening first and talking second. So those kinds of things then also create sort of structural, I think, challenges to, to one's success. Um, and I guess I'm kind of conflating now two pieces. I'll stop in a moment. Uh, I'm conflating two pieces. One is sort of the individual researchers sort of success, contentment, happiness, and just stress level and all that. And, you know, the effective, effectiveness of research to do its job and kind of improve the product. Um, Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. There's an, ex an example of structure and kind of all its tendrils, uh, you know, really having an impact. Yeah, something that you you said in, in, in that answer there um, really made me think about the expectations on research and researchers. You mentioned how other disciplines don't actively seek researchers' input and how they do what they do. So you don't get a developer or an engineer asking a researcher to do some code. There's a movement at the moment, uh, it feels like a bit of pressure that the researchers that I talk to are, are under in general to reinvent themselves. And part of that is being driven by what I'm seeing out there. And that's the, the people who do research, which I believe you've talked about versus the user researchers and this um, shift to, to enabling non-researchers to do research. And the, the most basic example of this is uh, the usability test and that the UX designer or the product designer or the product manager uh, could, can and should, and maybe um, does run, run these studies. You know, what is it, uh, what are the, actually I'll, I'll, I'll rewind that back a little. How do you feel about that? Great question. Um, right. A, a lots of lots of things are going on there. I think um, you know researchers have been champions for research. Uh, you know, I, I mean, yes, I've written books and given lectures and teach people. I mean, I want people to be able to do this. Um, and yeah, there was kind of a point a few years ago where I had this like, oh, intro oh, moment, like oh, like be careful what you wish for, right? Like you, you, you invite everyone in, you tell them to do this, you show them how, 
And now we're at a point where we're like, oh, everyone's doing it. Um, which, you know, has impacts for, I mean, just the demands for my services, right? Uh, uh, so what, is, what does that mean? Um, I mean, I think, I think it's a net good, but it, it's created lots of upheaval and lots of challenges. Um, I've heard stories about um, teams that went to a lot of trouble to set up sort of structure to enable people who do research to recruit their own usability participants and, you know, moderate a test and get the results. Um, and uh, as I understand this, and this is someone else's story, so uh, if, I, if I have it wrong, it's on me. Um, it led to a lack of appreciation for the research team, which was fairly sizable and doing, I think, all kinds of work for this company, uh, but they dramatically downsized. It's like, well, why do we, why do we need you? Like, we can do all this. Um, you know, so we call all of this research and we say, this is all, it's all, you know, lowercase r, capital R research. Researchers do it, people who do research do it. These are not all the same thing, right? We don't, we don't have, and, and this is on the practice of research uh, to not, um, you know, sort of articulate that nuance or those distinctions. Like, uh, so I, I think there's, you, you have lots of examples where this is very successful, where um, like it's driven, sorry, there's a lot of facets here and I'm, I'm jumping quickly across them here. Uh, a lot of this is driven by uh, demand exceeding supply. Well, that's good, right? The company, the teams, the squads acknowledge we need more research than can be performed. Um, and we're not gonna hire 170 researchers. Like, uh, I mean, if you're a big company, yes, but you know, we're not gonna hire people to do all these things that maybe not even be a good thing to do. So now we have a, a resource problem. All right, research leaders, how are you gonna do this? Well, we can prioritize, we can delegate, we can kind of level up people. I think there are all these mitigation strategies. Um, there is research that, um, you know, there's some snobbiness here uh, that, I mean, I, I'll, I'll admit to, there's like research I don't want to do. It's not, um, it's not an efficient use of my time. It's not a good match with my skills. Uh, there's other research that I do want to be involved in. Um, and so you have these teams with some diversity of kind of skill set, but also intellectual leanings and background. Um, so being able to sort of take I think this is a great thing for a leader to do. Like, um, uh, I saw this talk that uh, the folks from Assyrian in Nashville put together, um, and it was kind of around the cookbook for a user research team. I don't know if I can extend the whole metaphor, metaphor properly, but they had this kind of sheet of paper that they drew up that was, um, they did this process of looking at what the different teams were doing and they kind of, they coded them. Uh, there were things that the teams were doing that they were gonna just ignore. Like a team over here has got something, they're doing these kinds of check-ins with people that are these kinds of users, like not even gonna touch that. Um, and then there were things where they were gonna go and like, and again, I'm not getting everyone's stories exactly right. So this is my paraphrase. Um, they might kind of intervene, like advise, like, hey, you know, you could do this better if you use this or we have this tool for you, we have this resource. Um, there were things they were going to kind of manage and then there were things they were going to kind of own. 
Um, and so they're, they're brief for themselves. Again, resources are constrained. It was about, you know, looking at all that stuff and making kind of an assessment about that. Um, and, and I think being, it sounds very empowering to say, there's things we're going to just ignore. We're like, maybe in the best of all possible worlds that wouldn't be happening, but it's not, we can't. So we're just going to leave it. Um, and so I think they're being strategic, right? They're, what is our mission? What do we have resources to do? Where can we have the most impact on the company? And let's, let's look at what those activities are. Um, so there's research that's going to be happening that will have none of their involvement or they'll have little of their involvement. That seems, I mean, while there's risk in that, I'd say like overall, that's good, right? There's more research happening than the research team can do. And the company is learning more about people and its products that they're going to put out in the world. So um, yeah, that's how I feel about it. So, I mean, it sounds like you look at this as an opportunity rather than a threat. And it, it's almost like there's a, a maturity of research that's happening. Like it's almost like growing pains at the moment. It's sort of where do we fit in? How do we add the most value? You know, is this a, a maturing of research that we're seeing and living through? Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. And, and you can look at individual companies and kind of see where they are in that trajectory. Like what is their, what is their maturity look like? Um, but you're right, I think you know, in the aggregates, because we have companies or teams or leaders that are at different points, right? They're kind of pulling everyone along uh, and we have some more models of what what kind of looks like. Um, yes, I, I think there still are, I mean, you know, when, when you mature at anything, it's like you sort of, you can look back, but you can also look forward. I think we, it's clear how many things are, are not, um, are not yet fully worked out in terms of, like I said, we don't even have a, a, a proper term to describe this different kind of research. So that, um, you know, that might be the indicator if we can talk about this in a more nuanced way to distinguish between these different pieces. And I think there's, there's maturity to come there, but yes, I think, you know, tremendous growth, right? If you look at the number of researchers, the number of books, conferences, podcasts, whatever it is, there's a lot more out there than there used to be. Um, but you're right, I'm really, it's cool to hear you say that. Yes, I think the, the discussion of what we should be doing in our organization and how and who um, is moving right along, I think, in, in a good way. And, and this moving along of how research is practice and where researchers add value, how are you um, adapting uh, you know, as Portugal Consulting, as yeah. Steve Portugal, how how have you observed your practice changing in recent years to accommodate for the shift? Yeah, I mean, I think um, helping companies to mature their practices is often the request that I'm getting. Um, so yeah, I'm a researcher. I definitely go and work with companies and run a study, you know, to sort of use the, uh, the jargony term, you know, do some research, you know, help try to drive decisions. Um, but more and more companies are looking to, you know, someone like me who's written books, I suppose, or just as, as a history um, to guide them in 
you know, how to move from where they are now to where, where they, they want to be. I mean, sometimes that involves trying to assess, like doing research on the practice. What is, who's doing research? What are you doing? What kind of decisions are you making? Um, sometimes it's collaborating with those leaders who maybe have done some identification already of where they see the gaps. Um, sometimes it's working on skill development for researchers uh, who are kind of stuck or have some questions they really want to dig into. How do we get better at storytelling, like a pretty soft kind of framing around researcher skills. Sometimes it's around people who do research who just don't know if they're asking questions the right way, don't know who they should be talking to, don't know what kinds of studies they should be doing. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's sort of been the evolution. And, and for me, the goal is to kind of have, I mean, that's the fun of consulting, right? Everything informs everything else. So doing research makes me a better workshop instructor. Running a workshop makes me better at doing research. Seeing how this team is kind of progressing, it helps me understand how this team could build a roadmap. Um, so, you know, when, when my workload is good, it's good because it's, it's diverse enough that, um, you know, I'm learning, I'm better at everything because I'm getting to kind of peek into these different kinds of problem spaces and use some different muscles of mine. Hmm. So sh shifting gears now, thinking about that uh, that role, doing the doing as the researcher. You've said that you'd wish researchers stop approaching research as a way to solve problems, and instead focus on people. Tell us a little bit about that and what you mean. You know, that initial question that you frame a research effort with, um, yeah, I mean, you, you set out to look for something, you're going to find something that looks like that. Yeah, the more you do this, the more you sort of learn the yes and, right, how to find something else. Um, but if your research study is about, um, you know, help us find uh, help us find the pain points in our invoicing system. I mean, you can find them and you can fix them, but that's starting with an assumption about the world. If, you're, if your exploration is about, um, yeah, how do, you know, how do people that manage money for businesses, um, you know, take care of the money in and the money out? I'm using sort of non-processy terms, right? Um, you know, that obviously includes the tools that they use, not just ours, but our competitors, um, the tools they use that our product feeds into or flows from, um, the numbers, the, the, the ways that people uh, interact and communicate and try to accomplish their goals. It builds like a, a richer picture of the thing that we're trying to do. Our mission is not sell people more invoicing software, right? Our mission is support people in, I don't know, money management or kind of accounts receivable. It's, it's one or two levels above. Um, and if we don't do research with that in mind, we, um, you know, we, we're missing opportunities, um, opportunities that we don't know that we don't know, opportunities that are within kind of what we're doing. Um, 
And we are, uh, you know, you can get kind of false negatives and false positives. Like if you just zoom in too much, you think, oh, this isn't working. It needs to be different. Well, it's not working for another reason. If you don't zoom out enough to understand that larger reason. So yeah, looking at people and their behavior gives you information to answer questions about your product and how you should solve something. But, um, you know, you're, you're run the risk of missing a lot of exciting stuff that I think has this tremendous potential for, for the thing that we're trying to do, right? Help the organization think, think and believe differently about what they're doing in the world so that they can have the impact that they want. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for the researchers that are listening to today's show, I mean, some of them are probably feeling like this, um, ability to focus on the people and the bigger problem connected to the mission may feel like um, a lot of a, a bit of a luxury um, that they can't quite grasp. How do I communicate to the business that they have an objective uh, and I'm shaping my research question in a way that's perhaps a level or two above where the business stakeholders see my role. What uh, advice uh, or experience in similar situations can you share with those researchers that feel a little bit stuck with their ability to level up their research questions so they can research those more interesting and more broadly and potentially more impactful areas of their their customers and users right and i think sometimes it's worse than even what you're talking about i've i was I have colleagues where their stakeholders were sitting in on calls with them and then going back over the script afterwards and like, I want you to get to this topic by this minute, like, like micromanaging it as a script. Um, you know, I think, you know, once dynamics are established, it's, it's a lot more work to change them. And, and ideally you want to kind of get in front of this. This is great when this is it's still challenging. This is better when there is a research leader who is, um, who is setting the tone for what the team does and setting the tone ahead of time um, and that can back the individual researcher up. Um, I think one key for a research leader or this individual researcher is trying to shift the narrative from reactive research to proactive research. And that doesn't mean we're not answering the questions that our teams you call them squads. I'm trying to use your word squad, but our squads know that they have. It doesn't mean we're rejecting their questions. It, it um, you know, I think I said yes and before. It can be, and I, you kind of modeled it pretty well. Like we're going to talk about your thing, and we're going to kind of we're going to start here. Um, so, but, so being proactive is a different way of doing it, and and so reactive is often hey, we're here, this is just about to happen. We just need these questions. Can you get them to us by this and this time? And now you're like a short order cook. You're at a fast food restaurant. Um, the proactive is, hey, squad A and group B and you know this department over here, we're looking over the next 18 months or four months, whatever kind of your planning horizon is. What are you building? What are you shipping? What new markets are we going into? What you know, innovations are we kind of exploring? All right, let us propose to you what information you're gonna need to do that. And let us propose to you, or not even tell you, 
um, you know, here's the activities we're going to engage in to support that. Um, and so to answer those questions, especially when you, so the, the better thing about, you know, reactive, uh, proactive versus reactive is you can, uh, you can look at the bigger picture. I don't need eight studies about how somebody onboards. I need one study about, you know, longitudinally what the life cycle is of somebody's experience with something. So now we can put together a, a more intentional study that includes, you know, what are your goals and includes where did you click and includes, I don't know, a log analysis and includes, um, you know, patterns from, from data science that they're gonna pull. Because now we are trying to solve the problem, not kind of apply a method in a in, in kind of um, a less intentional way. So um, I think researchers can be asking those questions. They can be asking all kinds of questions if they're involved in, you know, thinking more long-term and thinking more intentionally. Um, and so, yeah, going back to my point about leadership, if you are seen as kind of supporting the squad um, and kind of an executor of, um, you know, plans that are handed to you, it's very hard to say, let's take some time and talk about your goals and talk about your plans. And, you know, maybe in, you know, fast growing startups, like there isn't that. It's, it's harder to do that. The time horizon is shorter. Um, and you need the authority to convene that conversation. Um, so it's certainly easier if that's the title and that's what you're hired for and those are your peers and you're having meetings with them anyway. It's not to say that a researcher can't be a change, you know, a, an isolated individual contributor researcher can't be a change agent and say, you know what? I think these conversations need to happen. And I am going to... Um, Find, uh, find someone that where we've been successful together before in the past, who is excited by information that surprises them, is sort of comfortable with the unknown and comfortable with challenges, their assumptions. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna just talk a little differently about what we do, or I'm gonna pitch them, or I'm gonna have a meeting with them. Um, and so to start kind of slow individual changes. Again, it's very hard to manage up and change culture uh, and so I don't want to sort of overpromise that, but I, there are so many great stories about people who have found allies and, and, you know, gone, go, you know, go where the heat is, go where the love is, uh, to start to, to not even start to continue having these kind of better conversations about what we're going to be doing. And then, you know, yeah, how we're going to go about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, if you're listening and you're a, a sort of a lone researcher and you really want to level up the organization, that that um, what Steve mentioned there about finding an ally, you know, find someone that connects with the value that research can bring and you don't have to convince and then see if you can work with them to further the, the goal. Um, I want to come back to something you mentioned, Steve, just, just there about this Sound, sound like almost a tension between uh, proactive and reactive states of research. And one of the things that I've observed, and I'm not sure if this is your experience as well, but even non-tech or product-based organizations are adopting agile as a way of working. Um, you know, it's almost like you have the quarterly result used to be the most important thing and everyone was charging for the quarter. And now you have this cadence of, delivery based on sprints, which are, you know, for argument's sake, two weeks long. Um, 
yet the discovery cadence doesn't seem to have yet found its rhythm to work in with delivery expectations. How much of this tension between proactive and reactive is, is, is baked into the way organizations are actually trying to create things these days? I mean, I think reactive goes back to kind of the origins of user research and, and us saying we don't get any respect and we get brought in too late. I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, UX design before, before we even had UX, you want to go back decades, um, you know, that was, that's a perennial complaint. I think, um, I suspect when you have, you know, engineering led businesses, that's kind of how they operate. And, um, as other processes and disciplines have tried to make a case for themselves, they've faced the, yeah, we're being brought in too late and we kind of can't have impact in the way that we know we can offer. Um, so I don't think, you know, agile software development methodologies or the things that people do that they use that label to characterize. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm sure that's exacerbated it, but I don't, it, it, it goes way, way back. Mm. So we think now about the individual researcher. There's an ancient Greek saying that goes along the lines of know thyself. What do you believe is important for a user researcher to know about themselves when doing research? This, 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 the bias word is this word that comes up a lot. Um, people that are new to research are afraid of it because they've sort of heard it and they think it's a bad thing. Um, and you know, when we use bias in, in other contexts, it's a it's a bad thing, right? You can it's a fireable offense, it's discriminatory to, you know, it's not inclusive. So bias is kind of this bad thing. Um, and sort of, it's hard to then sort of say, well, in research as a human to human activity, bias is just, it's part of our wiring. Um, and, and there are, there's that amazing diagram. It's like the cognitive bias wheel. I don't know if you've seen this thing. It's like overwhelming. There's like, hundreds and hundreds of biases i gave up on it i just it freaked me out when i looked at it yeah and and so people ask right and they're like well how do i stop being biased it's like this is part of the brain this is part of culture um you know we have choices i think i think we have lots and lots of choices but we also sort of have we have biases it's kind of it's it's we come with it um Right, I was hearing some people talk the other day and they were very, uh, I wish I could have captured their language. It was so brilliant. It was about the combination of, um, you know, as a researcher going through a study, there's the combination of lived knowledge and uh, collected knowledge. They, they said it much, much better, but it was, um, I had never heard it put so neatly. Um, so we all have lived knowledge. We have a view of how the world works based on what we've experienced. That is an unassailable fact. You cannot cleanse yourself of that. Um, but we also collect knowledge in doing research. And those two pieces interfere with each other. They inform each other. They're kind of, they're intention, but they're also, I think, in sort of celebratory ways together. Um, so that is, 
that is the nature of being a researcher. And, uh, and I love that these women I heard talk about this the other day didn't call it bias. They just said like, you know, I've been in the world and so I, I have an experience and I have things and I'm doing this research and I'm, and, and so all those things come together. Uh, again, another example of me paraphrasing and not doing justice to somebody who was very smart. So um, if you heard that, it's better than what I'm saying. Um, so that, that self-knowledge that was sort of being described there, um, as opposed to squelching a bias or denying it or even overriding it. Um, and so for me, there's been just trying to pay attention to those moments. Like when you do an interview, I mean, especially true in an interview versus maybe some other methods, you're just gonna make a mistake. You're gonna ask a question and the answer to that question is outside the presumptions of that question. And that's, that's a failure, right? Um, uh, so when you get kind of a well actually response, right? Um, right, uh, you know, Brendan, uh, you know, as a, as a citizen of New Zealand, what's, uh, you know, what's it like to, you know, live in a place where the borders are closed? Well, actually, my family came here, Steve, from, you know, uh, from the, you know, whatever, former Soviet Union, you know, in, in the 80s. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so that's, that's awkward. And, and I've, I've failed as the interviewer when I do that. Um, but it's actually... There's actually something cool in that. Uh, like there's a little gift in that because my question had an assumption and the answer challenged that assumption. Well, that's what we're trying to do. That's the whole point of doing the research. If I know everything about everything and I just get all this great stuff coming in, then like we don't really need me. But um, as much as I'm trying to be open and not make presumptions, I'm still going to like try to be nice to you and tell you how much I know about you and connect and do all those sort of pleasing rapport building things. So when you make those mistakes, and sometimes they're not even utterances, sometimes they're just, you know, monkey mind things. Like I have a whole story about this person in my head that I don't know that I have until they tell me something about them. And that is cool. That's like this little gift. Oh, how I thought the world was is not how the world is. Like, that's why I collect groceries from other places. That's why I do research. Um, and so you have these small moments where that is happening. Um, so in terms of knowing oneself, um, I would love for people to be able to just identify like the second or the microsecond that anything like that ever, not all of them, but just once identify what that is and kind of sit with what the feeling there is. Um, is it a feeling of failure? Is it a feeling of excitement? Is it all of those? Um, so for me personally, I think that's a really interesting, interesting part of research um, that we can make into a positive and, and make us more effective, right? Because ultimately you want to embrace those moments, not shut them down or not hear them because then you're not you're missing the chance to kind of get everything out of, of this experience that you possibly could. Yeah, I really love that notion of recognizing those gifts. And I, I, this is something I've actually wondered about, and we don't have time today to go into this in, in any detail, but just the expectations that we place on ourselves and our profession and how they may have been shaped through our education and, and, and sort of what success looks like. And it seems like, I mean, if I think about my own uh, practice, 
you know, very um, hard on myself, which I think can be a good and a bad thing. Um, but when it verges on that perfectionism, like how do I accommodate for all of these biases and really wrapping yourself over the knuckles if you make a mistake in an interview, which I've done in this interview. I mean, this isn't a user interview, but, you know, being too critical uh, really removes your ability, I feel, to 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 acknowledge and see and do something with those moments, those gifts that you've mentioned, Steve. Um, so we're, we're gonna bring things to a close. I have um, just a couple of quick final questions and then a, a short game to play. If there was one thing that people could use from the user research toolbox that would help them to understand other people and I'm talking about people at large in general, not people in the practice of user research. What would that be? I had a, a mentor slash colleague early on that would say, uh, people make sense. Um, and you know, sometimes you approach, uh, the, the worst version of this is people that talk about participants lying uh, I'm not saying it never happens, but for the most part, you know, someone says A and then contradicts A later on. They're not lying or it's not, it's not a useful frame to look at it. It makes sense. Why did they understand or feel the need to kind of express something, you know, at a certain part of the interview? What was going on? What were they expecting from you? Were they trying to impress you? Were they uncertain? Were they nervous? Did they not understand? Did you give them an hour to reflect on it through an in-depth conversation? And then later on, they talk about it another way. Um, so, you know, as opposed to kind of pushing against and refuting what people tell you and it doesn't cue to the structures that you're kind of projecting on them, you know, I guess it's kind of my theme here, right? You're, you're missing the chance to kind of see them where they are um, and sort of using those contradictions, seeming contradictions as kind of um, a map to kind of, you know, to, to kind of look below and try to understand. And yeah, you just say that, that person makes sense to them they make sense if they don't make sense to me that's on me and so i have to ask myself questions about what was going on there and why did we hear that um maybe if you're still with the person you ask them the question but you're still going to be sorting it out you know for the next however many days and weeks so ask yourself the question why did that happen why did they say that uh, yeah people make sense yeah that seems like a really important question or thing to bear in mind when you're talking with other people particularly at the moment where there's so much charged rhetoric and and sort of dysfunction um in 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 society at the moment around quite important issues and being able to sort of you know say that the other person makes sense and just try and understand why they said what they said i think is a is a really important thing for us all to bear in mind so now we're going to play a quick game it's called, what's the first word that comes to mind? So what I'm going to do, Steve, is I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and then you're just going to tell me what immediately pops into your head. Sound good? No, well, let's do it anyway. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. First word or words, research, sprint. Good God. <laughs> The second word, ethnography. <laughs> uh, sigh. And our final word or words today, pain point. 
um, go further. So thinking about the immediate road ahead, we're in 2021. What is your greatest hope for user researchers in the coming years? I think the path for user research is really exciting. And you've talked about, um, you know, sort of maturation. Um, I think there are conversations emerging uh, that, uh, that, you know, so I gave the example of we don't even sort of align on the words that we use. Um, uh, I think I see people creating more and more spaces to talk about that. There's lots of conversation, probably nowhere near enough about um, uh, power dynamics and systemic inequality uh, and uh, race and other aspects of identity in uh, the relationships between researchers and participants, uh, the relationship between researchers and colleagues. Um, I suspect that you know, researchers in academic social science settings have more of a kind of a context for those conversations, but I don't know, it's not my world, um, but it's new, it's emergent, or uh, I think in the professional world of user experience research. Um, so that's an important set of conversations. It is uncomfortable, it is elusive, um, but it's starting to happen. Uh, and so that's, you know, I, I put that kind of in the same category as, hey, what word do we even use to talk about ourselves? Um, not because of sort of their social consequence or just the, you know, the, the one that there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, bad things happen to people with one of those and we're ineffective basically speaking with the other. So I don't want to equate them that way in terms of what's at stake, but those are all examples of things that we have kind of taken for granted as a practice. Um, and you can kind of see us moving into like, I don't know whether we're at a 2.0 or a 3.0, but the, the maturation that you talked about where um, there's more people, there is uh, less interest in talking about the same old things. Um, and there's more interest in people who are willing to say like, yeah, we need to have this conversation. I wanna have this conversation. Um, and so, yeah, there's just so many things that we don't, uh, that we just kind of move on past. Uh, and, you know, we talked before about kind of compensation structures and kind of reporting structures. Some of those are kind of operational and tactical. And I think there's a lot of stuff that is just bubbling under. Um, and I'm just, I'm excited by, uh, you know, people who are newer to the field than I am who um, are bringing, bringing up issues and addressing them. And uh, so, I mean, for me, you know, I have been doing this for a long time and I have so much to learn and I'm seeing the field that I am in change. Um, and that's like 5% threatening and 95% exciting. I think, I mean, that's, that's probably the percentage what it is for me, like on, on, a, on a healthy day. Um, so I think it's good for people that are in the field. It's good for people that are coming into the field. It's good for the work that we do and the impact that we can have. It's good for me. 
to uh, you know continue. I say start as if it hasn't been happening, but it's just starting to happen. The last couple of years, we're starting to um, identify and make space for these new and necessary kinds of conversation about all aspects of the field. So I'm super excited about that. Yeah, it's an exciting time, and I think we've got a lot to look forward to, and probably some work to do. But it's um, it is an exciting time, and that's a great place for us to finish today. Thank you, Steve. It's been such a wonderful conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, and I want to say thank you so much for so generously sharing with us your experiences and your insights, and for your contribution to our community over the years. Thanks for the chance to speak with you. I really enjoyed this and I hope it's, uh, it's interesting to people as well. Well, I'm looking forward to doing it again sometime. For people that are interested in connecting with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I would send them to LinkedIn. I'm Steve Portugal on LinkedIn. I'm Steve Portugal on every platform, but uh, for stuff like what we're talking about, LinkedIn is a, is a great place and I like to keep in touch with people there. Great. Thanks, Steve. I'll make sure that we link to LinkedIn in the show notes. So for everyone that's listening, all the resources that we mentioned today and anything uh, by way of getting in contact with Steve, we'll have that there. Uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this, don't forget to like the video, make a comment for Steve or myself, subscribe to the channel, and we'll keep them coming. And until next time, keep being brave.